All right, last time in our study in Proverbs 24, we went down as far as verse 10 was where we completed our time together. In fact, it's a great verse. I'll just read it again for sake of letting it speak for itself. In the 10th verse, we left off where he told us, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And so just a, a great statement, very applicable to all of our lives. As all of these Proverbs are, you know, they're almost individual topical sermons and insights, kind of little uh, bite-sized truths that God gives to us sort of in this workshop of wisdom that we have laid out in the book of Proverbs here, particularly in verse 10, as we saw last time, adversity that is, you know, facing hardship, difficulty, uh, misfortune, enduring heavy pressure, which reminds us and reveals to all of us that we, to all some degree, face, as we said, times of adversity. No one is immune on this earth from adversity. To live is to struggle on this planet. That has been a reality since the days of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord and the curse of sin came upon this planet and Adversity is a part of human existence, and sometimes we add to that adversity by our own bad choices and our own wrong decisions, and sometimes when we strive against the Lord in ways that we're not attended to, we make bad choices or selfish decisions. You know, the Bible says, woe to him who strives against his maker, and so sometimes we create some of our own self-inflicted trials. We've all done that, and sometimes usually when that happens, we don't have to figure out very much if that's our own self-inflicted trial. We kind of know when we create our own adversities. But even if we ever did, and we don't, but even if we ever did everything right in this life, we would still face from time to time adversity, whether it's illness or financial struggles or just circumstantial hardships, misfortunes, things that we go through. It's part of human existence. It's part of what shapes our character. It's part of what draws us into relationship with God because many a times that's when people truly either find and discover their need for God in their life uh, or maybe for some of us it's when we come back to God, when we find ourselves in the midst of adversity and we kind of finally surrender and cry uncle and reach out to the Lord. And he says that in the midst of the day of adversity, the key thing as we looked at is just not to faint in the midst of those times, that is to, to not just give up. Again, that's what the devil wants us to do. The devil wants us to just faint, to throw in the towel, to give up, to say, times are hard, this is difficult, so I quit. And God calls us to something different, which is perseverance, and that by the grace of God, we would push through, we would carry on, we wouldn't give up, whether that's you know giving up in a pursuit or giving up and doing what's right, or God forbid, as some even would believe the lie of the devil, they, they give up altogether. And in a sense, they choose a self-destructive choice to end their own life. And that's, of course, the, the greatest lie of the devil to do such. And God says, if you find yourself fainting, giving up in the day of adversity, in some ways, that's just a character lesson. You're realizing that your strength is small. Uh, and perhaps you're not quite as strong as you thought you were, which is nothing other than just a reminder that you need God's strength and help a whole lot more because uh, you realize your own weakness in times like that. And God is a way of teaching us great character lessons in the midst of those things. Well, verse 11, we carry on where we pick up tonight. He says, deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. 
And if you say, verse 12, surely we did not know this, does not he, referring to God, who weighs the hearts, consider it? In other words, God weighs out our heart. He knows what's really going on in the motivation of a human heart. Despite what we say with our words, God knows what's going on under the surface. He sees the true condition of our heart. Does not he who weighs the heart consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? That is what's really going on inside, though the excuse was being made. I didn't know that. And will he not, verse 12, render to each man according to his deeds? So uh, the idea here in verses 11 and 12, first what we see him doing in verse 11 really is just counseling us, all of us, living in wisdom rather than living foolishly. One of the marks of wisdom, he counsels us, is that we would do whatever we can as people to intervene or even to try and prevent in whatever way we can those who are being drawn into, we might say, a destructive end. Those who are on a path toward destruction, who are being drawn towards a destructive, harmful end, he says, verse 11, what wisdom does is not sit by passively and say, boy, that's really unfortunate. Boy, that's really sad. Boy, that's really a shame. And, and kind of just you know wink at it and walk by. He says, no, wisdom understands there's a time to have a backbone and courage and to step into the situation when you see someone being manipulated, mistreated, taken advantage of, even the worst of things, those being drawn toward death, those stumbling toward the slaughter. Of course, you know, we read verses like that and we think of you know, literally places where stuff like that in human history has happened. I can't read that verse without, not, for example, thinking of the events of the Holocaust. You know, those who are being drawn towards death, stumbling to the slaughter, you know, the horrible things that were done to the Jewish people, uh, being, you know, you know, harmed and put to death and just, you know, again, and that's just one of many, many examples in human history. I mean, things of this, you know, genocide type stuff, they go on to this day still in countries all around the world where people you know, are being mistreated, people are being put to death, attacked, slaughtered for what they believe or because of their ethnic you know, uh, race and so forth. And, and, and this is just a, a tragedy. And sadly, you know, many times those kind of things are just kind of just, they're just kind of dismissed. People are aware it's going on, but people many times just don't want to get involved. They don't want to engage. You know, I can't help but to read verse 11 to think of, you know, the, the horrible tragedies that happen in our modern abortion industry, you know, innocent lives of, you know, children who've been conceived and yet the parent or parents, you know, don't want that child. And so as the result of that, they, you know, feel it's their right to exercise their perceived freedom to murder an innocent life by putting to end their child's life. And that's, again, strongly financed, strongly encouraged, strongly accessible in the whole industry of abortion. And I can't help but to think of how in some ways this speaks of that as well, those being drawn towards death, all the innocent children who in a sense aren't having the freedom to have their right protected to life. And he says, look, it's a good thing in times like that when we see these kind of things going on, again, whether it's literal death or just people on a destructive path, who are maybe being coerced, maybe a young person being led astray, maybe somebody manipulating somebody and leading them down a path of drug addiction and destructive behaviors, that there's a time to step in and to, to do a deliverance mission, to do a POW rescue mission, to say, you're not on my watch. 
If I can do something about that, I'm going to step into the story there. I'm going to try and step into the situation and do something I can to help and try and hold back. The idea is to prevent or intervene those who we see being drugged down a destructive path. And when we see that, when the idea is when God brings that before our attention, and that may happen in different lives in all of our ways. There may be occasions where God brings a situation across your path and you see someone being drawn down into a very destructive situation where God's prompting for you or I is to step into the story, to do what we can to help, to try and get them out of that or rescue them before they're ruined or harmed. And, and notice what he says, verse 12, it's almost as if God kind of knows humanity. Look what he says. He says, if you say, surely we did not know this. In other words, the, the human temptation at times, to make excuses for not wanting to get engaged in certain situations to do something to help or to rescue or to stop wrongdoing or to protect someone or spare a group of people when we rightfully could. And look, whether that's just to speak up verbally or whether that's to intervene in some way, literally, practically, some circumstantial action to actually do something. And he says, if there are times when we are tempted to just say, mm, I don't know if I really want to get involved in that, then I'm going to get drawn into that, or I'm going to put myself at risk, or in some way. Uh, and so we, we, in a sense, we, we, we play like that we're ignorant. And we say, so I, I didn't know that. And God's saying, yes, you did. <laughs> Yes, you did. You just didn't want to get involved in that. Either it's I was too selfish or we were too lazy or we were too concerned about protecting our own welfare and right and so so we 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 walk by again it's kind of the old you know thing of like you know we we see uh, you know this guy being you know bullied and we realize well maybe I should step in and stand up to the bully so that this little guy doesn't keep getting pounded all the time and instead we oh I, I didn't know that I didn't know that I didn't know he was bullying that kid and stealing his lunch money and God says yes you do you've been watching it from September all the way through May what do you mean you don't know about it and God says, don't, don't play ignorant. The idea is, again, he knows we're prone at times to people to make excuses. And he says, look, if we're making excuses, does not he who weighs the hearts and he who keeps your soul, does he not know it? In other words, we're not fooling God. We might be able to kind of indicate to others that we were clueless and we weren't aware. And the only reason I didn't do something is I didn't know that. I didn't know that was happening. Or I didn't know it was going on. And God knows all things. He says, you were fully aware what was happening in that situation. God always knows what's true of our hearts and of our reasoning, why we do certain things or don't do certain things. And again, which indicates here, God knows at times why we don't get involved at times when maybe we really should have gotten involved or why we don't step in and maybe confront a situation that's wrong and destructive or speak up or push back or hold someone accountable. And God says at times we do that, but be aware, God says, he will render to each man according to his deeds, which just speaks of accountability. Uh, God says, I, I'm going to hold you accountable for that. You know, Jesus said to, to whom much is given, much is required. Uh, and the more we know, the more is expected of us. God expects us to walk in truth and obedience, having faith and courage when something has been made aware. He then holds us accountable to that. James chapter 4 on a New Testament perspective speaks of that reality. James 4 says it this way, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. 
you know, we talk a lot about and think a lot about sins of what we would call, you know, sins of commission. That is, you know, man, I shouldn't do that, and I know I shouldn't do that, and I know I shouldn't do that. And God says, right, another angle, another side of sin is when you know you should do something. You know there's something good you should do, get involved, help out, talk to that person, intervene in a situation, have the courage, speak up, help out, protect somebody, try and stop them before they go off the cliff or whatever. And he says, when we know there's something good that we should do and we opt for whatever the reason, fear, laziness, you know, lack of faith, whatever, selfishness, and we don't do that good thing, God says, that's sin. Because you knew exactly what you were supposed to do and you refused to do it. You chose to refrain. And God says, that's another way that we can be guilty. And I think very good for us to remember sometimes we err in what we don't do, not just the things that we do do. Sometimes when we know a good thing should be done, God holds us accountable and expects us to do that. Verse 13, he then says, my son, eat honey because it is good. And the honeycomb, which is sweet, enjoyable, pleasant to your taste. So notice honey and the honeycomb, it's both good in the sense it's beneficial, valuable, and then sweet to your taste. The idea is it's also pleasant and enjoyable. And he says, in the same way, verse 14, it's a comparative thing, so shall the knowledge of wisdom be to your soul. If you have found it, there is a prospect, there's an opportunity, a good future in it, and your hope the idea is for better things, better days, won't be cut off or, in a sense, something that you're disappointed by. So he speaks of how in verse 13 there, again, using a, a human experience as an analogy, honey, he says, is two things. It's both satisfying, it's pleasant, so it's satisfying, it's sweet to the taste, it's satisfying to ingest, and it also provides nutritional health benefits to the body. There are certain health benefits that honey does supply. So honey is a thing when ingested that brings both a pleasant experience and it also supplies health benefits. So therefore, it'd be wise not to neglect something like that, right? If it brings benefit health-wise and if it's an enjoyable, pleasant experience, it'd be good to embrace the opportunity to ingest it. So he says, eat honey, my son. He says, it's, it's pleasant and it's also beneficial for you. And then he says, in the same way, so shall knowledge of wisdom be to your soul. So the idea there is even as honey offers benefits, if it's indulged, in the same way, the indulgence of acquiring more knowledge and more wisdom is also beneficial to our soul inwardly. In the same way, honey can help us physiologically in our physical life. He says, acquiring knowledge and obtaining more wisdom, that can be very beneficial to your inward life. And it can bring benefits and make you a more healthy individual to make better choices. You'll have a more pleasant experience. It'll bring about a better uh, prospect for your life. In other words, better things are available. There are opportunities for greater things. The more knowledge you have and the more wisdom that you've acquired, it will benefit you as a person and just bring more pleasant experiences into your life. You know, I, I think kind of a general concept overall, he's also reminding us here in verses 13 and 14, is really just how both with the honey and with the knowledge and wisdom point is that wise people take advantage of good opportunities, right? So he says in the same way that honey's there, 
and that honey is good for you. It can bring beneficial things if you ingest it, but you got to be willing to ingest it. And it can bring a pleasant experience if you take the opportunity and eat it and ingest it rather than push it aside and neglect it. And in the same way, knowledge and wisdom. It's there. It's an opportunity. There's opportunities to acquire knowledge. There are opportunities to gain greater wisdom. You're doing that to a degree tonight. You're coming out on a Wednesday night. You're particularly studying the book of Proverbs, which is a book about wisdom, and you're gaining knowledge from God's word. Again, it's an opportunity. Nobody forced you to come here tonight, right? You had to get out your little umbrella and drive yourself over here and navigate through the miserable weather. You could have just kicked back in your recliner, and, but you, you chose to come here. You, you embrace the opportunity, but it was a choice to do that, right? And I think whether it's the honey in the physical sense or the knowledge and wisdom gaining, what he's basically pointing out is that wise people take advantage of good opportunities when they're set before them. Wise people do that. Wise people realize, hey, there's an opportunity to eat that honey. There's an opportunity to gain knowledge and wisdom. I can either say yes to the opportunity, embrace the opportunity, or I can pass up the opportunity. I can neglect the opportunity, walk past it, make reasons. And so whatever that means in all of our lives, from time to time, a wise person realizes this is a good opportunity. <laughs> I better take advantage of that. I better, you know, we talk about, you know, make hay when there's opportunity. You know, that's the idea there. This is a wise opportunity. Don't miss wise opportunities. When God sets a good opportunity in front of you, if you don't embrace it, somebody else may come along and scoop up that honeycomb and eat it for themselves. And God says, I put it before you, but you walk past it, so somebody else is enjoying it now. So again, I think just a good reminder, wise people, take in consideration when good opportunities are before you, take advantage of them. That's a mark of wisdom, and it's a way where you have a better prospect for your life and for your future. Verse 15, he goes on to say, do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous, for a righteous man may fall seven times, the idea is continuously, and rise again. Aren't you glad for that? But the wicked shall fall by calamity. So notice, God knowing that those doing what are wicked at times can tend to prey upon abusing the righteous, abusing the godly, he cautions there, first of all, in verse 15, against the wicked trying to take advantage or rip off or abuse in some way those who are doing what is right and those who are doing what is good. He says, don't you dare, O wicked man, lie in wait against the dwelling of the righteous and try and plunder his resting place. In other words, God's saying, let me give you a word of wisdom. If you want to be wicked, be wicked by yourself. But be real careful, God says, when you want to be wicked, and you start using your wicked behavior to start taking advantage of other people and hurting other people and harming people who are trying to do what's right and trying to rip off people doing what's right in the midst of your wickedness. God says that is not a good thing to do. And, you know, sadly, that's kind of what does happen. I mean, that's really, if you think about it, in some ways, what crime's based in. If you think of just crime in the society, you're like, what's crime? It's people who want to live wrong and, and break laws and do what's wicked taking advantage of harming and hurting people who are just trying to do good and right things in society, right? I mean, that's just, that, that's the nature of every police call. You know, when I was serving as a chaplain with the police department back when we were a pastor in Calvary Chapel of York, I'll never forget one of the first ride-alongs that, you know, we were doing. I was riding around with the officer, and I forget how we got in the conversation, but he said something along the lines of, he said, you know, I, he's a chaplain. He said, I just want to say, you know, 
I think there actually probably are some really good, you know, people in this community who just want to do what's right, and they, you know, they, they want to just cause no problems. They just want to work hard and pay their bills and enjoy their families. There's probably some really good people doing some really right things in the city. He said, but you're going to discover we never get to meet them. And, and <laughs> it was like an eye-opener. I was like, yeah, I'm starting to pick that up. I'm only four hours into this ride along. I'm starting to notice that. You know, we, we're, we're not responding to houses of people who are families, you know, just minding their own business and doing what we were responding to all the people who were in their wrong behavior, trying to come against the dwellings of the righteous, you know, ripping people off, crimes and robberies and you know, just people harming people. And God says, that's not a very wise way to live. Again, why? Because God's going to hold people to account for those things. God's going to hold everyone accountable. And, you know, the thing that he declares here really is a beautiful principle in connection to this, verse 16 and 17, that the righteous man may fall seven times but rise again. So notice the principle there of God's help and preservation for those who humbly seek to live right and serve God. For the righteous, those who are trying to do what's right, trying to honor God, live in a right way, they may fall. In fact, he says here, they may fall, not even just once in their lifespan, they may fall seven different times. That is, they may fall repeatedly from time to time. And there are times when even those of us who try and do what's right in life and humbly seek to serve God, in times we may fall for whatever reason. There are times we may fall because maybe somebody knocked us down or somebody mistreated us. And again, like the, the wicked, you know, they, they cut out our leg. And, and there may be times where we stumble and fall because we get knocked down unfairly as God's people because we're trying to do what's right. There are other times as God's people that we fall from our own stumblings, as we talked about. We make a mistake and we fall, we sin, we fail, and we find ourselves tripping up and making mistakes. But isn't it wonderful to know whether somebody knocks you down or whether you trip and stumble and fall in your own mistake, God kindly intervenes to preserve. And, and, and he doesn't just walk by and kick you while you're down or just step on your head and smush you further into the ground. People will do that. People love to do that. Kick a good man when he's down and what you fell. Well, it's, and, and they act like they've never fallen. That's the thing that always shocks me the way people treat one another. They want to kick somebody else when they're down or just further you know, squish their head into the ground. And, and, and Did someone do that to you? And, and, but yet humanity, we do this. But look, God's nature is totally different. When God knows someone genuinely wants to do what's right, even if they fall, he says, that righteous man will rise again. And why? Because God's a God of resurrection. And so God intervenes whether someone knocks us down or we fall down through our mistake, God kindly intervenes to preserve, and not just preserve, but to restore us. We rise again. God restores us back. He graciously forgives us, and he gets us back on track. Boy, think of how many times in your life, more than once, when you have fallen and you've risen again, and the reason is, is because the Lord intervened, and he came to you in his mercy and he forgave you, and he helped you, and he put you back up, and he restored you, and he gave you another shot, and he helped you to rise up again and walk forward and gave you a new opportunity, and how wonderfully God does that continuously, and what a kind thing to know that, yes, we may fall, but it doesn't mean we're done, and that when we fall, God's there to get us back up and to get us walking forward to restore us once again. That's his kindness. That's his way. That's a benefit of the righteous, but he says, look, the wicked 
someone who's just lived wickedly and keeps living wickedly and stubbornly in persistence doing what's wrong, he says, look at the opposite. They fall by calamity. The picture there is the opposite. Those who are proud and defiantly live in wickedness, thinking they never have to answer for it, thinking nobody's ever going to hold me accountable. I'll do what I want when I, and just that stubborn persistence. God says what happens is in time, they finally slip up that one last time, and when they fall, everything falls apart. And it's not just a stumbling. It's not just a skin knee. Listen, it's not just a setback. That's what happens when the righteous fall. It's a setback. We skin our knee. We get humbled, but we get back up. But he says when the wicked fall, it's not a setback. It's the major calamity. It's a total disaster. It's complete ruin. And God says much better to be on the end of trying to live right doesn't mean you won't fall still, but if you're trying to live right and God genuinely knows it, when you fall, God will rise you back up. But if you're just rebelling against God, he says, be warned, don't be foolish. Eventually, you are going to fall, and when you fall, God says, that may be your final fall. It may be the complete calamity and absolute destruction. So again, the wise takes that into consideration. Verse 17, look what he says. He's talked about falling now. It's almost as if God has to hold us accountable. He says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Now, anybody who plays sports has already failed at that, or if you watch sports. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it, and that displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him, that is from your enemy, from dealing with your enemy and disciplining your enemy. So he cautions here, verse 17 and 18, against the temptation of foolishly enjoying or maybe even celebrating when someone maybe that we greatly dislike or who's been an enemy to us when they crash hard. And they may. And it may come a point where eventually they do crash hard and the automatic human temptation is to think, finally. Woohoo! You finally got it. You finally, I've been waiting for your train wreck. And there's something in the perversity of our human nature that we want to gloat, right? Especially if it's been our enemy, we want to gloat and almost like rejoice that they finally crashed. When the reality is it should be more of almost in a sense there's a gladness of finally, Lord, you've broken them. Thank goodness, Lord. Not that they fell and there's the embarrassment and the destruction and the devastation. Lord, thank you that you finally got their attention and God says, be careful that you don't rejoice and let your heart become glad when you see your enemies stumble, lest the Lord see you rejoicing and maybe say, oh, you think that's so funny that I'm dealing with him. I'll tell you what, I'm just going to leave him alone now and I'm going to come humble you. And God says, you don't, don't want to find yourself in that category where he's having to humble us for our pride in gloating and rejoicing over someone else's failures. Again, why? Because that's not the heart of God, right? God wants us to always remember we're all failures, and right, you just said in our last verses together that even righteous people fall, and we all fall at times. We all make mistakes, and God wants us to stay conscious of that. God never rejoices at the failures of people. God never enjoys watching us suffer when we make mistakes. The last thing he wants us to do 
is to be pleased when people make mistakes and fail and think it's a joke or it's a celebration in some way. That, that, that's just a horrible thing. The Bible tells us that God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Isaiah says that it's even a strange thing for God to bring judgment because it, it's not what he wants to do. He, he'll do it because he's just, but even when he does bring judgment, it's, it's a strange thing to him because that's not his preference. And so again, God never rejoices when any human being falls or perishes or needs judgment, and he doesn't want us to, as human beings who are failures, to do something he, as the perfect God, would never do. So he cautions us against that. Verse 19, do not fret because of evildoers, get all anxious and worked up, you know, what are they doing now, and oh my goodness, don't get all worked up when people do what's evil and wrong, nor be envious of the wicked, to be jealous, you know, man, it's not fair, they're, you know, getting to enjoy this and that, and they're doing what's wrong, again, the perspective on that is where we have to always take into consideration, that's where Psalm 37, Psalm 73, those are two great Psalms that address that very issue, if you want your own Bible commentary on verse 19, And then he says, verse 20, for there will be no prospect for that evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. So God says it's just a matter of timing. So we have to keep perspective that we don't stress over what evil people are doing. It seems like they're getting away, but in the end, God determines enough is enough. And when the time comes, notice, again, I find a degree of consolation. It's almost like the Bible is saying there in verse 20, don't worry, I'll put their lights out. There have been a time or two where you have as well, just, I'd really like to put that person's lights out. And God says, vengeance is mine. I'll put their lamp out. (laughs) You you just keep your hands in your pockets, son, and I'll put their lights out when the time comes when it's necessary to finally do that. Verse 21, he says, my son, fear the Lord and the king, two authorities, the authority of God, the king of kings, and the human king, civil authority, Fear, reverence, show proper respect for their authority, and don't associate with those given to change. For their calamity, that is, those given to change, the, the one translation is that those given to rebellion, that's the idea there, wanting to change things, overthrow authority, their calamity, those who do that, will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that those two can bring. So this speaks, verse 21 here, And 22, really, of kind of this idea of the importance of respecting authority in our attitude, in our actions, proper authority, which respecting God's authority, fearing the Lord, he's the ultimate authority, and fearing the king, that is human authority, civil authority, law enforcement, government officials, that we're advised, Romans 13, to recognize that all authority exists, exists by God's allowance. And let me just say in connection, because here's where we always stumble on this, oh, well, but, but they're an evil civil authority. Or, or they're, look, at the end of the day, God's the ultimate authority, and I believe the Word of God even teaches there are times where God will permit and allow even evil governments and evil civil rulers to rise to a place of power as a way of orchestrating something that he ultimately wants to do. You know, to a degree, people sometimes get so mad after every election, and I kind of just step back when I think to myself, sometimes God just said, I gave you what you wanted. You're in a country, you're free to vote. And so why, why would God allow this person to be in office? Because basically, like God says in his word, sometimes God gives us over to our own ways as people. And so God can use good, godly authority in civil places, and that's a wonderful thing, but 
God can also use the allowance of even an evil authority to fulfill his purposes, to humble people, to get God's people praying, to you know, get us to learn things and to cause us to depend upon God as our higher authority at times. And so this speaks of showing proper reverence and respect. We should always show reverence and respect to authority. You know, predominantly authority in the scripture is meant to be something that's respected and not always resisted and rebelled against and challenged. We live in a generation where so many you know, have no respect or regard anymore for authority. And it's almost as if this verse really kind of brings out the surface. He says, don't associate with those given to change. And again, that, that term there, given to change, literally you know, communicates the idea, those who are given to always trying to change things. The idea is they always want to resist. They always want to turn the tables. They want to take charge instead of letting those who are properly in charge be in charge. There are people who always want to overthrow, you know, you know, bring about a rebellion or, you know, resist what's going on, you know, whether, again, whether it's resisting government, whether it's overthrowing, you know, civil authority, whether it's resisting the authority of a police officer and trying to, to you know, the, to kind of change the dynamic. You're not in charge. We're in charge in the streets. No, you're not. You don't have a badge or a gun. You're not in charge. You're trying to change the dynamic, but you're, you're going to cause problems, and you're resisting the God-ordained authority. And look what he says. Those who are prone to do that, God says, here's my suggestion. You want wisdom? Don't associate with those kind of people. God's saying, you see somebody, they got a rebellious attitude. They're always one of those kind of people. They're always got to buck the system and try and revolt. God says, those aren't good people to associate with. It's just not healthy because you're going to learn their ways. But he says, what they're also going to do, look, he says, their calamity will rise suddenly. Rebels never end up well. People who are leading revolts and being rebels usually end up bringing more pain and problems, and God says their calamity will rise suddenly. So he says, be careful. You know, those who are kind of like this, they travel slippery paths, and many times they just bring about greater ruin. You know, much better to be a compliant and humble person who, you know, respects authority. And look, I'm not saying there aren't times, again, where civil authority oversteps its bounds, and there are rare occasions, but they are the exceptions. And you better have a biblical standard and a Bible verse to be able to back up when you're going to, you know, like those in the book of Acts, say we must obey God rather than men. That was when they were saying you cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, in that situation, then, you, then lock us up. But so many times I think we, we, we go way beyond this over convictions or issues or things we don't like, and whether it's in our workplace authority or civil government or society, and even, you know, again, families, even in the church, just that spirit of rebellion and disrespect for authority is never a good thing. God said it often leads to sudden calamity. Verse 22, these things also belong to those who are wise, he says, it's not good to show partiality in judgment. Again, we should always be fair in dealing with anyone. We should never give special treatment to a particular person because we feel pity for them or lower the standards or woe is them or they're a victim. And so we, we lower the expectations. That's showing partiality. That's wrong. God says you, you shouldn't lower the standard for someone just because you feel some degree of emotional pity for them or, oh, they've been through so much, so I'm not going to expect as much as them. I'll give them exceptions. They can break rules, and they don't have to meet standards. God says that's not right. And in the same way, we should never 
show undue preference or be overly impressed with somebody and show partiality because, well, they're special or they're important or, you know, if I grease their gears, I can get something out of them and, and we can show partiality on both sides. And God says it's never good to show partiality in judgment, even emotional connection. You know, when we were raising our children, there were numerous times where, you know, when you raise kids, situations arise, this thing happens in school, this, that. And as a parent, one of the things you have to be able to do as a parent, trying to honor God more than your own child at times, is even when a situation arises, not automatically assume your child's right and the other child's wrong. That's partiality. You know, sometimes as a parent, you have to say, well, let's think about this. You know, if my child's wrong, then maybe my child's wrong in this situation. And, and we have to always take that into consideration. You know, situations happen, conflicts, tensions. You can't instantly just jump to, well, that's my family. And that, no, you don't show partiality and judgment. You got to set your emotions aside and you need to genuinely think through and understand. He says, don't show partiality and judgment. Look, he describes the worst case of doing that. Verse 24, he who says to the wicked, boy, this is society today, you're righteous. Those who are doing what's evil, wrong, sinful, corrupt, now we're saying those are the people who are doing what's right. You know, we're telling the wicked in society today, you're actually right now. We're changing the rules. Those who do what's wicked, you're right. Him the people will curse and nations will abhor him. But those who rebuke the wicked will have a delight and a good blessing will come upon them. So God says, you shouldn't be saying to those doing what's wrong, you know what, actually you're right. And, and all these righteous people, they're the problem in society. You know, all these conservatives, right? You know, nowadays, you know, all you conservative, you Bible-believing, conservative, moral people, you Christians, you're the problem in society now because you won't let us change morals that have existed for centuries. And I know they've existed for centuries, but why are you holding the line on that? Why are you telling us that this is the way marriage has always been? This is the way... And, and, and now the wicked are being called right, and you and I who are seeking at times to do what's right or moral, we're the problem. We're the dangerous people in society. And God says, no, not showing partiality and judgment would be having enough backbone and stiffness in your inner person instead to rebuke the wicked and receive a good blessing from the Lord by saying, no, you know what? You're wrong. And you're not going to bully us and intimidate us and tell us that this is something acceptable. You're not going to come in and do your, you know, filthy drag queen dancing hour with kindergarten students and have four- and five-year-olds sticking dollar bills in your panties, you're a pervert. You're a pervert, and you shouldn't be in our school doing this, or you shouldn't be doing story hour in our libraries. Oh, but th those are the wrong people who want to say stuff like that. And God says, no, that's actually the right thing to be doing. Because, again, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men and women to do what? Nothing, right? And so God says there is a wisdom that we don't show partiality in wrong ways and that we're smart. I love what he says, verse 26. He who gives a right answer kisses the lips. He who gives a right answer kisses the lips. You know, when we think of a kiss on the lips, that's what? It's an expression of love to demonstrate you care about a person. So what's he saying in verse 26? He's saying that caring about someone enough is giving them the right answer in the conversation. It's like a kiss on the lips. In the same way, when you kiss someone on the lips, you demonstrate you care, you express your love. He says in the same way is caring about someone enough to give them a right answer when they ask for your input. 
Sometimes when somebody asks for your input, the most caring thing you can do, the greatest expression of love, is to give them the right answer. Not the easy answer, maybe not what they need, you know, think they need or want to hear, but, but to genuinely tell them what they, they do need to hear, the right thing. And he says, that's one of the greatest expressions of love. We may be prone at times to offer a wrong answer for various reasons. Again, you know, we don't want to seem confrontational or we don't want to step on somebody's toes or we don't have the courage to, you know, just say what's right in an honest, loving way. And God says that that's lacking love, right? Remember, the Bible tells us in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so if somebody genuinely asks you for your advice or your input, the best thing to do is to give them a right, honest answer. God says, that's like a loving kiss on the lips. Hey, you ask my input, I'm, I'm going to give you the right answer here. It may not be easy to hear, but I'm going to give you the right answer, whether it's giving them the truth of God's word or whether it's giving them a right answer about any input. That's a demonstration of caring for someone. Verse 27, he says, prepare your outside work, make it fit for yourself in the field, and then afterward build your house. So this speaks, notice, here uh, of making it fit for yourself in the field, your outside work as the first priority before coming and building and working on your house. Verse 27, in a general sense, from kind of a, you know, a bird's eye oversight, speaks really of just maintaining proper priorities in how we operate. Keeping things in proper priority, in the right order, and, and it also, we might say, speaks about planning well. Planning well and keeping proper priorities, responsibly putting necessity on one thing before the other. And in this situation, it speaks of responsibly putting, what he's describing, responsibly putting necessity before leisure. Let me say that again. Responsibly putting necessity always before leisure, always before luxury always before enjoyment or things of preference, God says that is an act of maturity. That is what wisdom does. Wisdom, before it builds and blesses and makes its house nicer, says, you know what? I better make sure I got enough food going to come in from the field to pay for all the nice stuff I just put in my house <laughs> to pay my bills. And so God says here, there's an order. The order is first prepare things. Ensure you're able to adequately provide the resources required for survival. That's what it means to go work in the field. Again, working on your house, work on your house, you know, building the cabin. Work. And in the meantime, God says, but you never tilled the ground. You never planted the seeds. So you're going to have a really nice cabin. And by winter, you're going to starve. Because you were so concerned about a luxurious cabin, you should have been working out in the field, making sure you were ensuring your survival with adequate provision. God says, you got to work on the provision part first, then afterwards you can do the luxury, the enjoyment, building your house. But God says the, the, the preparation part is important. We want to attend to that first, get things established, set things up sufficiently, ensure things are ready, get adequate provision in the work field, God says. Then once you've got that ready, then after that priority is addressed and you've planned well, then God says, then start building the house. Then afterwards, you can do the secondary thing after things are prepared and set up. You've taken proper time to get it ready, got what you need, then start building your own house. And look, I think that's a great nugget of wisdom that can be applied in so many different ways. You know, you have a younger person or a single person who 
you know, wants to build a house in the sense of getting married and start a family and build a, build a home life and so on and so forth, God says, look, before you do that, get yourself a job. Go out and work in the field. Don't go and get married and start having kids and say, you know, I guess we better get a job too. No, God says, get all that ready first. Be responsible. Plan, prepare, get everything ready that you need, then start building afterwards. Don't put the priorities out of order. And so God says, make sure you take that into consideration. And I think, again, whether that's the physical realities of what we do, you know, whether we're trying to consider you know, households or physical structures or renting here or buying that, God says, you know, get this ready first, then do this second. Because if you get the planning and priorities out of order, you're going to end up struggling on the backside of that, God says. So it's just great wisdom God gives to us. Get things ready first. And I think, you know, even in regards to every area of our life, you know, there are proper priorities and plannings. And, and in all of our lives, that's the general concept is always put necessity first, luxury, enjoyment, and preference second. And keeping that priority is wise planning and it keeps us out of many, many regrets and headaches, but it does take a degree of wisdom and surety to keep yourself disciplined to do that because it's hard because your neighbor's going, look at my house. Look at this house I got. Does your house have one of these in it? Does your house have that in it? And so, you know, no, it doesn't. I just, I don't know. And, and then we're driven and we get our priorities out of order. And so God says, just be a wise planner Keep priorities. It's a very wise and helpful thing to do. Verse 28, do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause. For who or would you deceive with, with your lips? So again, don't say things about your neighbor if there's not justified basis. Be careful, God says. You don't want to deceive people, pass on information or speculate. Not that we ever do that as Christians. Speculate that you know what's going on and you start testifying things about your neighbor, and you're really kind of deceiving because you don't have all the facts. And he says, verse 29, don't say, I will do to him just as he's done to me. Revenge. I'm going to get him back. I will render to that man according to his work. What he did, he deserves back, and I'm going to give it back to him again. What does God tell us as we saw earlier? Just let me take care of that. Vengeance is mine. God says, I'll repay better to let God do it. He does a much better job, and then we don't look bad. You let God go and handle your business for you. You know, in, in the days of, uh, you know, the mafia, you know, that was kind of the godfather idea. We, we have God the Father, and, and he does even a better job than the godfather idea. He will deal with things, and we have to be willing to let him do it. That's the hard part. Now, verse 30 through 34, we'll conclude with this little picture here as we finish out the chapter. He just gives another one of these pictures here of the downside of laziness and neglect and really not, you know, maintaining things in our lives. It's a picture. Uh, it just, you know, speaks in many ways. Look what he says. I went by the field of the lazy man. Interesting. He just said in verse 27, make sure you get things ready out in the field. Make sure you've tilled the ground and planted your crops and you got enough to bring in a harvest to have what you need to buy your you know building materials and feed your family now he comes this idea i went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding and now look he shares his observation and there it was all overgrown with thorns its surface was covered with nettles its stone wall was broken down. The idea 
is it was suffering severe neglect, right? It was, it was, there was no maintenance on the property. There was no maintaining and upkeep. It just let things fall apart. When I saw it, I considered it well. Notice, there's, there's always lessons in observation. One of the greatest ways in life to learn is just watch, just observation. He says, I just was out walking, walking through the neighborhood. That guy's got a good property. That guy's got a nice property. His house ain't falling apart. And he says, and then, whoa, that guy's house is a mess. Is there some health reason? And he said, well, I just realized, no, he's just lazy. His house is just, his house is just falling apart because he doesn't do any maintenance. He doesn't do anything. He just sits inside and eats chips, and he just, he's just lazy. And, he's, and he says, I learned this was just a lazy man with no understanding who neglected and didn't care about maintaining what he was responsible for. And he said, I looked on, and I look what he says. I, verse 32, I received instruction. It, it taught him a lesson, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler, and your need like an armed man. So notice, it just again, the, the wisdom concept, one of the few in here is that reality of lots to be learned by just observation. It is amazing what we can learn in life taking the correspondence course and just observing what's going on around us, looking at other people's life. You know, I hate to use the term people watching, but you know what I mean by that, just watching how things fall out. Again, good examples, Hey, and that's a great example. I can learn from that. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but also bad examples and, you know, those who've just mismanaged uh, their responsibilities in life or, or what they're supposed to maintain, poor stewardship. And that's what this is a sad picture of, a man who just in poor stewardship as a result of laziness and neglect, it was a failure to maintain what he was responsible for. And it suffered tremendous neglect. And look, for all of us to some degree, way beyond just our physical properties. There are certain things, there are fields, spheres of influence, things that God gives all of us a degree of responsibility for, and God cautions that we always be careful that we don't neglect what we've been entrusted to take care of, but that we put in the maintenance, that we maintain things, just like you gotta maintain a vehicle or maintain a physical property. Listen, you have to maintain a marriage. A lot of marriages are like that house falling apart right there. And one of the main reasons sometimes you, you just start to realize is there was no maintenance. There was no maintenance on the marriage. The marriage just got neglected. The relationship got neglected. They weren't making any deposits in the marital bank and the thing went bankrupt and then they were angry and upset and couldn't understand. There is nothing to withdraw anymore. There's nothing here. And, and I say to look, here's why, because you never deposited anything in the bank or you stopped making deposits in the bank and so it went to zero. Marriages need maintenance. You gotta maintain that relationship. Anything in our life that we have responsibility for, our children, we gotta maintain that responsibility. We can't neglect, we can't let things fall apart. Our own Christian life, right? That's why the Bible says godliness is something we have to exercise ourselves towards, right? If you and I neglect our spiritual life, we're gonna become really like this falling apart house. And look, we've seen this, right? Well, I've watched, you've seen lives of people who maybe were really healthy and vibrant and fruitful and strong and serving the Lord. And then spiritual neglect starts to happen and they don't maintain their walk with the Lord and they become neglectful of their Christian life and things just start falling apart. 
And, and God says, just be wise, don't do that. Pay attention to maintenance, pay attention to erring in the area of neglect, and if that's happened, do a reno, man. <laughs> get, get, get involved. Don't just let it fall apart. God says, start working on that. Start fixing it up, doing what you can to get things back on track. Let's stand together and let's pray.